0: This is the Ancaine brief with Peter
1: Hoffland. Research out earlier this year confirms what many doctors had feared. Cancer screenings dropped significantly during the COVID-19 pandemic. The study, published in the February 2022 edition of the Journal of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, examined data from the Ontario Cancer Registry in Canada. The results show that in March 2020, the week-to-week rate of cancer diagnosis dropped by 34.3%. And this worries doctors, because over the last few decades, the cancer survival rates have improved, in part because of earlier detection of disease. So doctors fear that this disruption to healthcare access may negatively impact early detection of cancer, which may lead to serious problems later. Another aspect that worries doctors is that delayed diagnosis and treatments means that in some cases, a patient's diagnosis may not be brought to light until stages 3 or 4, when cancer is more difficult to treat. Based on the available data, some experts predict a spike in new cancer diagnosis later this year and in 2023. The main reason, they believe, is pandemic-related, including lockdowns and fears of the coronavirus, which caused COVID-19. In addition to early diagnosis, the pandemic also stalled, delayed or cancelled clinical trials. Based on some estimates, this impacted as many as 60% of all oncology clinical trials and biological therapies in the United States. So, the big question is, what are the real implications of stalling or cancelling these clinical trials? In some cases, postponing clinical trials means that progress and the development of novel therapeutics is brought to a halt, and this, in turn, may be extremely detrimental for cancer patients' quality of life. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. The Oncogene Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncogene, at oncogene.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment and cancer prevention. For information on how to support this program, visit our website at oncogene.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Mary Lamont. Mary is the general manager and chief executive officer of Intelliquid, a company that strives to match patients to clinical trials accurately and promptly. Or, in other words, the company ensures that physicians and their patients have access to the latest and the best clinical trials, using decision-making technology developed by the company. In turn, the same technology helps reduce the administrative burden for research centers.
0: This is the Oncazine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncazine, at www.oncazine.com.
1: What does the future of cancer screening and treatment look like? How can we speed up clinical trials? And how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted healthcare? Or rather, how has it impacted access to healthcare? Here to talk with me about this is Marie Lamont. Marie is the General Manager and Chief Executive Officer of IntelliQuid. Mary, welcome to The Youngest in Brave.
2: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: So before we're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact this has had on diagnosis and treatment, as well as on clinical trials and cancer research, tell me a little bit more about your company.
2: Sure. We are striving to create data and technology-enabled healthcare organizations. I know that sounds like an odd term, but our goal is to ingest all of the clinically relevant healthcare information for a patient and then match those patients to clinical trials. A lot of what's in uh, the electronic medical record is free text, and it means a doctor and their staff trying to find all of that data in free text and in associated documents makes it difficult to match a patient to a trial. So we're trying to ingest their information, give them their data back to use, and match their patients to clinical trials. So we're trying to enable them, save administrative burden, save them time, match patients faster so that they have options for those patients, especially those who may not have an approved therapeutic yet.
1: How is this approach different than, for example, a CRO or clinical research organization recruiting patients?
2: So we do no recruitment efforts. We give our platform to cancer centers, and it functions behind their firewall. Uh, We digitize a clinical trial, and then by ingesting the data, digitizing a clinical trial, it produces a list of matched patients for clinical trial primary investigators that they and their staff can use to then evaluate and see if that patient will actually fit on a trial. Or maybe they have just started that patient on another therapeutic and they're gonna put the patient on a watch list to see how they do on that first line therapy before they offer up a trial. So there's no advertising. We don't go out and do any Facebook recruiting. We give the platform to the cancer centers for them to use behind their firewall. That way it's protective of um, patient healthcare information.
1: So what you're doing is a process that really gives information in the hands of the physician who can then talk with a patient and explain or ask them if they're willing to consider participating in a clinical trial. But without the pressure of media campaigns that says, hey, guys, if you suffer from, and I fill in the blanks, ask your doctor about this potential treatment and join this clinical trial.
2: You got it. And the way I think about the technology is technology can't solve everybody's problems. So the normal process would adopt would be a physician and their staff will crawl through records to try and find patients. Then they step over and they confirm the patients and then they decide put them on a trial or not. All we're doing is trying to automate the first step for them. That finding, we do. They spend their effort instead on confirming and then deciding, does that patient go into a trial or
1: not? And it is their own physician or the clinic where a patient is being treated that is responsible for the ultimate selection of a patient, right?
2: You got it. The doctor who knows their patients the best and or primary investigator at that site. You got
1: it. Okay. now. When you look at clinical trials, specifically in 2020, 2021, and right now, we encountered something like COVID-19. And one thing is clear, the pandemic had a major impact on clinical trials. Can you tell me a little bit more about the actual impact?
2: So it's an interesting statement we make because COVID-19 absolutely impacted trials, but it will depend on the type of trial or type of study as to the degree of impact what I'll tell you is trials where they're stalled, delayed, or canceled, 60% of trials for cancer drugs and biological therapies in the U.S. And this is from the Lancet. And so what that means is 60% of trials were impacted. So you say, okay, what about the other 40? Maybe those were what we call uh, an oral, a small molecule. And so those could be shipped directly to the patient, to their house. Maybe the patient didn't have to go in for an infusion. So those studies that made it easier for patients to do their trial drug at home meant those could stay more on track than those that had difficulty with supply chain or required additional patient visits to the cancer center where the patients couldn't get in because of COVID. So it's an interesting blend of impact Due to supply chain, uh, type of administration of the drug, or what other types of visits and tests were needed. I think we've seen global data reported that less than 45% of oncology trials resumed since the pandemic started. It's not because the trials weren't important, but biopharma had to start prioritizing which ones were they going to move along. And you had all of the COVID trials happening at the same time. Folks were still struggling, even in April, May, and June of this year, uh, getting restarted, having trials restarted. Um, the biggest hurdle I think we've seen is the diagnosis impact. What, that, what I mean by that is cancer screenings were postponed, right, all across the board. And so there, this is suggesting a spike of later diagnosis. And a surge of patients coming. You know, there was a JAMA research letter that said delayed doctor's visits resulted in a decrease in the weekly rate of new diagnosis for six common cancers, including breast cancer. I think in July of this year, the CDC found most women stopped breast and cervical cancer screenings in the early days of the pandemic, an 87% drop. So what you've seen is this really strange delay and this delay is going to have an impact on patients being seen at a later stage in disease because this cancer doesn't stop. It just means it's a later stage of the disease. And I think that's what is alarming so many of us. Now, there's some good things that happened, not good things because of because of COVID, but the, the side impact is look at how many more folks have been able to come up with telehealth, right? Oncologists started using telehealth um, for the first time. There's an interesting ASCO uh, post uh, paper that thoracic oncologists reported using telehealth for the first time ever during the pandemic. So we're seeing some progress, not just delays. I think our worry is we need to continue to see progress. Progress has got to continue to happen. Is there an opportunity for more small molecule, more oral and less infused? Because if there were anything, another pandemic, people who are on oral are more likely to be able to get their drugs than have to go into an infusion center and be infused for a couple of hours. So we're we're hoping things like that are improving uh, the treatment paradigm for patients. So there's a downside and an upside to everything, right?
1: Let's take a short break. And then we're back with Marie Lamont, the chief executive officer of Intelliquid.
3: Each day researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit StandUpToCancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together we can stand up for all of us.
0: This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland.
1: And welcome back. In today's episode of the Onkish in Brief, I'm talking with Marie Lamont, the Chief Executive Officer of Intelliquid. In this episode of the Onkish in Brief, we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the pandemic has stalled, delayed or cancelled as many as 60% of the clinical trials for cancer drugs and biological therapies in the United States. What does that mean for new drugs and cancer therapies? We also talk about technology, including telehealth, that is designed to help patients and reduce the administrative burden for community-based cancer centers. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Sure, now, when you talk about clinical centers, oral medication, and telehealth, there are a few questions that come to mind. While telehealth may be a great solution, there are also a lot of, I think, logistical handicaps, which have not yet been solved. And there are some regulatory limitations to telehealth, right? Some of these things are being addressed as a result of the pandemic, while others remain. But at the same time, when someone is going to a clinic for the first or primary diagnosis, telehealth may not necessarily be the best solution for a patient, right? I mean, it might be difficult to get that first diagnosis via telehealth, especially in cancer, where there may be a big emotional impact. But obviously, it may be a great tool for monitoring and having patients check in to see how they're doing, right? Now, how can we, with the tools that we have, get back on track and make sure that patients are getting screened, are treated, and if they want to participate in clinical trials?
2: I would suggest that there's an ability to split the type of screening and the type of support The things that folks might be able to be served at home, maybe it's blood testing, maybe it's a nurse visit that can be done at home, we could consider doing and have and did during the COVID pandemic. That leaves those things that require a visit for the sites and the cancer centers to support. And by sort of bifurcating those efforts, you're leaving the space and the social distancing and the ability for cancer patients to go into the center and get the screenings that can't be done at home with, um, I would say, less population, less people in the cancer centers. So that's one of the one of the options um, that folks have been looking at. Are there things that we can do that could take place at home? the The hardest part for many cancer patients is the discussion when you're first diagnosed and the discussion of therapeutics and options. It's really hard to have over a video because now you're talking about something that's incredibly emotional, but is also burdened with all this information that patients need to absorb. And it's really hard to absorb it in your first or second visit. And so, I think what we're seeing, excuse me, is some of the associations, whether it's the American Cancer Society or Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, trying to find a way to share and provide interpretation for some of this information to make it easier for the patients. It does make it easier for the doctors who have to deliver, but if there is an ability to, I'll call it, absorb the information about your health. Um, that's what i think folks have been trying to do is to to find a way to split that up with the number of trials down though and some trials not restarting it means there's less options and so you do have less choices for some of these cancer types of cancer and cancer patients and so folks are looking a bit more at phase 1 studies not just phase 2 or phase 2 3 As ways to become involved in studies. So there's a a wide range of things that are occurring in the marketplace. FDA's willingness to consider more and more real-world evidence, real-world data, synthetic cohorts, and retrospective studies instead of a head-to-head comparator is also going to make a difference.
1: You mentioned real-world data. If I'm correct, In a majority of cases, real-world data is data collected after a drug has been approved, right? As part of an observational study or simply data collected from treatment centers. But in this case, I understand that real-world data can also be used in clinical trials, where it can be part of the actual approval process. Can you shed a little bit more light on this?
2: EMRs have a lot or electronic health records have a lot of longitudinal data about patients. And if you look at some of the chemotherapy treatments, they've been out in the marketplace for 10, 15 or 20 years. So there is a history that's included in the EMR about those treatments. There's also some history for some of these immunotherapies that have been on the market for five or 10 years. So there is more and more of a willingness if that data can be collected, if that data is actually gathered in a way that can be analyzed, that can be used. So when someone compares their product against what has happened to patients in the real world for the past five, 10, 15 years, that's where it becomes compelling. The the important part is making sure that longitudinal data has what the treatments were, what was the outcome uh, of that treatment, right? Were there adverse events in the real world, which is very different than how you look at adverse events in a trial. So there's a wide range of things. And as long as it's collected, whether it's in the EMR or in ancillary documents and physician notes, It is then there so that could be consumed. And when I say consumed, that means ingested, turned into structured data so it can be analyzed. That's the important part. And not every institution is able to do that yet. There's a ton of companies who are like us, who are actually working through that process to be able to convert unstructured information into structured for the purposes of real world data. But you need good data and longitudinal data to allow for that use and reuse uh, of the information for retrospective studies
1: and am i correct to understand that if you're looking at real world data it also allows you to look at data collected by smaller community-based cancer centers rather than big institutions that may have networks that may have links with both pharma as well as the regulatory authorities while community-based centers may not necessarily have that. Does it, in effect, increase the impact of those community centers, especially when the data they're able to collect can really be part of the bigger picture? Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. I think that often what we see is studies occur at the big centers of excellence and academic medical centers. I think if I look at cancer, 5% of cancer patients participate in clinical trials but only 1% are taking place in trials in the community setting. So that tells you the big bolus of patients have been going through academic medical centers. So the ability, and maybe I should say, could take a step back and say 80% of cancer patients get their care in the community setting, 80.
3: So when you look
2: at real world data, you need to be collecting it at the community setting level. Because then you're going to start representing diversity. You're going to start representing real world data across the U.S. and across the globe.
1: And when you look at real world data, there have been some changes. For example, regulatory authorities are now making sure that women, children and minorities are represented in clinical trials, right? But how is that going to change real world data? And how is this going to change the way we collect and understand data? Are you expecting that by including women, children, and minorities, the outcomes of research are going to change?
2: It's entirely possible. You know, when you have too homogenous of a population with a drug being tested, you may not be seeing the variability that could occur, both in a positive nature, but also in a negative nature. You know, we're seeing the FDA Give more and more guidance about diversity, about including women, uh, including women of a certain age. There's always been an age cutoff for clinical trials, and folks are pushing pretty hard on that. You know, I think the ability to look at remote trial opportunities in communities where diversity exists is going to be vital. Otherwise, we're not introducing drugs that actually represent the real population. You know, I heard years ago, someone said, probably Chris Beebacher, the former head of Sanofi said, we should be looking like the patients who are gonna buy our products. I do believe clinical trials have been a little too homogenous and need to look like the people who will actually be prescribed the drugs in the
1: real world. And so that data becomes more specific. It is no longer focusing on one demographic or one particular gender or a particular population group, but it is data that is collected from everyone, right?
2: hmm And so I think with real world, you get that. When you look at the real world treatment space, you start to look at everyone who's been prescribed the drug. So it's less of a homogenized population to look at that real world trending.
1: Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Ongesim Brief, I'm talking with Marie Lamont, the Chief Executive Officer of IntelliQuad. We talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the pandemic has stalled, delayed, or canceled as many as 60% of the clinical trials for cancer drugs and biological therapies in the United States, and what that means for the development of new drugs and therapies, the future of cancer treatment, and the quality of life of cancer patients. We also talk about the results of a recent study confirming what doctors fear most, a spike in the number of cancer diagnoses, especially of cancer at a later stage, which is more difficult to treat. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brave.
4: Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to CureSarcoma.org.
0: This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland.
1: And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Yonkazin Brief, I'm talking with Marie Lamont, the Chief Executive Officer of Intelliquid. Now, talking about community-based cancer centers... There have been some problems for community-based cancer centers when it comes to their administrative burden. This administrative burden is really something that can handicap a smaller center. Tell me a little bit about this, and how can we solve this problem?
2: The financial burden of community cancer centers is different than an academic medical center because you tend to have more money coming into an academic medical center. They've got a broader range of time to produce their return on investment. At smaller centers, they're having to choose between advancing clinical research and giving their patients access to trials or helping their financials. Because of the burden that it takes to identify a patient for a trial, find that patient. It takes them a long time, and it's costly because it's a manual exercise for their staff. So if there is a way to help them analyze their data better, make decisions better, get patients identified faster that will help them because patient reimbursement is how they stay afloat. So anything you can do to give them a smart data-driven approach gives them a good foundation for growth. We tend to use um, what's called the feasibility questionnaire. Every cancer center has to fill out a feasibility questionnaire for a clinical trial, regardless of the clinical trial, even if it's one that's an investigator-initiated trial. But these feasibility questionnaires take a long time to complete. Usually, it's going to take... 30 minutes to an hour for every questionnaire. So you're taking your staff away from either something that's patient-facing or revenue-generating to fill out the questionnaire. You have to do the questionnaire if you're going to get a study at some point. So I think it's everyone's goal to figure out how quickly we can help them get the data to fill out those questionnaires so they're spending their time on the patient-facing or on the revenue-generating activity. Uh, and there again, there's a number of folks that are offering what I'm going to call data ingestion and patient matching tools. Again, the goal is how do we help them reduce that administrative burden, take away the manual effort and put them onto either patient facing or revenue generating activities that still allow them
1: to do trials and as a result, reducing the burden in that respect, right? I assume that If you look at the larger centers of excellence, they have a dedicated staff for that, but then the volume is also much bigger, so they can bear the brunt of that. But they may also have access to additional funding and research grants that smaller oncology centers may not have. Is that the difference between the two kinds of centers? That's absolutely correct.
2: I think part of that is the difference in the centers, and I think that the larger centers have the flexibility in their, I'll call it their financials, to help support the time it takes from a feasibility questionnaire being done and submitted to you getting the trial to occur at your site. They have the flexibility to support that window where the effort takes place until a patient is enrolled in a trial. Smaller cancer centers just have smaller income statements and balance sheets, and they don't have that kind of flexibility. And so if you can speed up their time from half an hour to an hour to five or 10 minutes, that's very material.
1: Right. And you're helping them with this?
2: Yes. Our technology does help with that. Absolutely. I've got a
1: lovely case study that shows it. (laughs) Talk about that for a moment, please.
2: So it really took a look at one cancer center. And how much time they spent on these feasibility questionnaires. They were spending 24 hours a week filling out feasibility questionnaires. They weren't doing one a week, but they were doing multiple. And so 24 hours a week got converted into 30 minutes a week using the technology. And so, again, anybody who's looking at technology to help advance a process should be able to do this. And there's a number of companies out there that are actually doing this kind of work. The things that can reduce that burden, so that's when I talk about data and technology-enabled sites, it's the things we can put into cancer centers that'll help speed time up for them, uh, give them some automation that'll reduce that burden.
1: So by reducing the administrative burden, you also help reduce the financial burden, and it may ultimately result in more patients during a clinical trial and ultimately being treated in a community setting. And this may not only benefit the treatment centers, but I assume it will also benefit patients because now they may be able to be treated closer to home rather than having to travel long distances from home to the clinic and vice versa. Is that part of this? Yes,
2: absolutely. And they can probably be identified sooner. If you speed up the feasibility process, you speed up the process to a site being accepted for a trial, you speed up the process for patient matching, which means the patient starts earlier on a trial than they might otherwise have. So it gives those, those choices to the treating physician and their patients.
1: Now, earlier in the program, you've mentioned that there is a benefit if patients can be treated at home or may be able to participate in a clinical trial at home rather than having to travel to a treatment center. This may be accomplished by a better use, or a more frequent use, of oral medication. And while I can see the benefit of this approach, one thing that comes to mind is that the increase of the use of oral medication also creates another problem, that of drug adherence. How can we avoid that problem and make sure that patients indeed adhere and take the drug they are prescribed, whether this is in a clinical trial or in a normal treatment setting?
2: You know, I'm a big fan of patient-mediated devices, whether it's an app or you can use your Apple Watch or uh, other tools to help keep track because you're spot on. Adherence is one of the biggest challenges, not just in a clinical trial, but in actual uh, treatment of FDA or EMA-approved therapeutics. So I think the opportunity For a patient to say, okay, I've taken my oral medication or delivered my subcutaneous injection or had a nurse come and do an infusion for me. Here's how I felt. Here's how I felt in the past week. Track their quality of life. Because one of the things we've seen, especially if you use rare disease and oncology, is that patients want to know we care about their quality of life. How are they feeling with the drugs? Give them the methods to be able to give us that feedback. And you'll also get a better handle on adherence at the same time. So I'm a big fan of finding a way to use technology to help patients give that feedback, which also enhances adherence.
1: Okay, now there is one thing that also comes to mind when you look at technology to help patients. And this may especially affect the older population who are in the late 60s, 70s or older that need treatment and may have trouble with understanding or using technology, especially some apps. What can we do to help?
2: You know, I I would say, I just blanked on the title, I would use tablets, you know, my my mother and her husband, my in-laws all use their tablets. They may not be fluid and flexible on a mobile phone or an Apple Watch or other devices like that, but they all are using some form of tablet communication, especially for family communication. So if we can throw out to that audience simple ways, big button clicks to say, took my drug, here's how I'm feeling today. Something that's simple and easy for them to use, we should do that. Not everything needs to be on, uh, you know, an iPhone 12. Um, You know, some of these tablets are simple to use, but families are using them a lot now to communicate. So we should meet the patient where they are.
1: That's true. And I think that the use of those tablets has definitely increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've also become more mainstream. Now, talking about the setback during the pandemic, which has resulted in a disruption of access to healthcare, how can we get back on track? How can we make sure that patients are again adequately screened and, when necessary, start treatment or participate in clinical trials? How can we make sure that this is happening?
2: There have been a number of efforts over the past year to do everything from improve supply chain to understand how better to bring patients into cancer centers, how better to communicate with patients. It would be horrifying to see any of those regress. I think, you know, the fact that telehealth was used during COVID-19, we should continue to do that. In the rural setting, people don't understand. Patients could travel two or three hours to go see a community cancer center. Let's find a way to meet those patients where they are, um, even if it's using telehealth for a portion of their care. And it's not an FDA issue necessarily, it's also the payer environment. The payer environment has to be willing to accept that and reimburse that. I think those are some of the things that need to change. We have to recognize volume at hospitals and cancer centers will probably never get to where it was pre-COVID. There's, we're just not going to be comfortable with that many people at a location at once. So staggering patient visits. Finding a way to to manage. I'll call it that personal space for social distancing, does mean things like telehealth, patient-reported outcomes need to stay in place. But folks have to be willing to support that when biopharma, as well as payers, need to
1: support it as well. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us in this episode of The on Brief, I'm talking with Marie Lamont, the Chief Executive Officer of IntelliQuot. We talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the pandemic has stalled, delayed, or cancelled as many as 60% of the clinical trials for cancer drugs and biological therapies in the United States, and what that means for the development of new drugs and therapies, the future of cancer treatment, and the quality of life of cancer patients. We also talk about the results of a recent study confirming what doctors fear most, a spike in the number of cancer diagnoses. Especially of cancer at a later stage, which is more difficult to treat. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncazine Brief. Hi, I'm Paul Schmidt, one
0: of the many voices of the Oncazine Brief. Help us by making your message heard in our program and online in Oncazine at www.oncazine.com. To request a media kit and learn more about advertising, sponsorship, and media partnership opportunities, download our media kit at www.onkazine.com slash media kit. This is the Onkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland.
1: And welcome back. In today's episode of The Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Marie Lamont, the Chief Executive Officer of Intelliquid. In this episode of The Oncogene Brief, we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the pandemic has stalled, delayed or cancelled as many as 60% of the clinical trials for cancer drugs and biological therapies in the United States. What does that mean for new drugs and cancer therapies? We also talk about technology, including telehealth, that is designed to help patients and reduce the administrative burden for community-based cancer centers. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned is that people and patients living in a rural setting may truly benefit from telehealth and similar tools. It may help them, as discussed, reduce the need for travel or take days off work. But when you look at the greater picture, for example, regional or economic disparities, would telehealth really alleviate this problem? Do you think that is really helping? Does this offer a potential solution?
2: I think it could help them because it may save them from having to take a day off from work and lose their income to go into a cancer center. So if there's a way to structure visits in in a slightly different way, so a portion Is done telehealth and a portion in person, I think we should. The same way doing that might also help with diversity in studies. So I think the study impact is the same as a a cancer patient getting regular uh, treatment, not just study treatment, should be able to do the same. Now, I'm going to suggest that the smart devices, the Apple watches and stuff, those may not get into the real, real rural and economically disadvantaged communities. But if somebody's got a simple phone or a tablet, that should help. I'd suggest that we also consider how do we invest increasing trials at some of those rural and economically disadvantaged centers and maybe even consider how do we subsidize them for a year or two to make sure we engender that diversity in studies. Now, that's not necessarily a popular opinion, um, but if that's what it takes to create some of that diversity... We should be thinking about it, but we've got to do it very broadly because it cannot appear as though we are experimenting on one population and not another. It needs to be very fair and open and transparent the minute you decide to consider something like that.
1: If I can sum this up in very simple terms, the COVID-19 pandemic has been absolutely devastating and has a real big negative impact on access to healthcare, on communities and on virtually everything else. It also has forced us to look at technology and new tools to do better. And maybe some of those tools can be used in the future, not only in developing new drug therapies, but also in the mainstream, in the clinic, and in providing the right kind of care for patients. Would that be a fair assessment?
2: That is an absolutely fair statement, and that's a beautiful summary. (laughs) I wish I had thought of that.
1: (laughs) So the end of our show, last year, 2021 was actually a very special year. Because in 2021, we celebrated that it was 50 years since the signing of the National Cancer Act. So when you look at the accomplishments made over the last 50 years, there has been a lot of change, a lot of progress in the way cancer is being diagnosed, the way cancer is being treated, simple the way we talk about cancer. So from where you are, how are we doing? And where do you think we're going? When you look at things, for example, novel treatment options, precision medicine, personalized medicine, and more.
2: I look at what has happened even in the past 20 or 25 years and say, holy mackerel, the evolution of looking at the whole genome and molecular data points and biomarkers mean we are getting so much closer to personalized medicine targeted therapeutics and immunotherapies are really out there in the commercial space today impacting patients. So I sit back and I say, what could we see in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, right? AI, real world data aggregation, other technologies in cancer research, For clinicians or researchers will help them better understand the disease. Um, If we as a society could find a way to push forward actually on genetic testing to happen earlier in the cancer patient cycle, that would be super important because it's happening a little too late still. So there's a way to ensure genetic testing is adopted more Rapidly and earlier in a patient journey, that's going to help clinical research move that much faster. So, I, I look at the progression towards where we are with precision medicine and say, we can do so much more. We can do so much more for patients and for healthcare in general in an, as the next steps. And, and by no means do I mean the progress we've seen is bad, it's a beautiful thing. The The work that uh, NCI can do with the SEER database is magical, right? The work that NIH is doing is fantastic. I just take a look and I say a new focus on genetic testing, improving global data infrastructure, you know, easier platforms. Maybe patients who are outside of clinical research can be now be included. That's like sort of my my hope for the future.
1: <laughs> right. So looking back, we've accomplished a lot and we've gained a lot of knowledge. And now it's time that we use that knowledge and move on and accomplish even more to benefit patients.
2: You got it. And there's so much knowledge. Yes.
1: Marie Lamont, General Manager and Chief Executive Officer of IntelliQuit. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure talking to you.
1: In this episode of the Oncissime Brief, I spoke with Marie Lamont, the chief executive officer of IntelliQuad. We spoke about how the COVID-19 pandemic stalled, delayed or cancelled as many as 60% of the clinical trials for cancer drugs and biological therapies in the United States. We also spoke about the results of a recent study confirming what doctors fear most, a spike in the number of cancer diagnoses, especially of cancer at a later stage, which is more difficult to treat. For more information about Intelliquid, go to the company's website at intelliquid.com. For us here at the Oncusin Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX Public Radio Exchange and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify. Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere you can find a podcast. For more information about supporting the Oncogene Brief, visit our website at oncogene.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. That is 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Oncogene Brief.
0: The Oncogene Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncogene and ADC Review. The Journal of Antibody Drug Conjugates. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.